Turn with me to Mark chapter 12 as we continue our study in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 17, so just a few verses today, but these are verses that you're probably familiar with. So as we go to them, let's ask the Lord for help as we open up his word. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us because we have so many words coming at us on a daily basis and even more and more we are skeptical of all that we hear. We don't know who who to trust and, and who is right and who's just trying to get something from us and and sadly, we confess that oftentimes we even come to your word with that attitude. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you would help us to trust you and you alone for the source of truth, of goodness, of justice, that we would know more about you and that we would understand more what you require of us as your children. Help us, give us wisdom as we open and hear from your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As I read through this passage, we're going to be dealing with this uh, images on a coin. It made me think of when I was a kid growing up in the wilderness of the boot hill of Missouri. It's not really wilderness. It's just this big old flat place. But it seemed it seemed like wilderness to me. You know, my, my siblings and I walked around a lot and we discovered lots of old things. And there were lots of old abandoned houses, you know, people would just kind of be there and then not, and just leave in their house and we'd go and look at things and old farm equipment. And some of the most exciting things that we would find are the old cemeteries. And these would oftentimes just be covered up with a forest. And so you'd just be walking in these, this group of trees and there would just be some, some graves in there. And, you know, old cemeteries are a lot like new ones, really. Lots of graves, lots of gravestones. And they usually represented a family cemetery or even where a church used to be, maybe, you know, so an old church cemetery. It's hard to tell. But on a few of the graves, I remember very distinctly as a kid, it's been years and years since I've been back to these places, but I remember very distinctly some of the gravestones had pictures on them. And it was a, maybe a glass picture that was just embedded into the stone or that was actually an engraved picture representing the one who was buried below. And the years on those gravestones were from the early 19th century, so like early 1800s. But the faces on them, and as I looked at them as a little kid, I looked at the faces and I thought, you know, they, those people could just be alive today. They're just ordinary looking folks. I think it helped us as kids to have a respect for where we were when we entered into this place, even as young children. We understood this was kind of a hallowed place. This is real people here that had real lives. So in our text today... This idea of images is right at the front as we see this question. And there's a coin that is presented here, and it has the image of Tiberius Caesar, who was the Roman emperor of the time. That coin carried with it lots of thoughts and ideas about money, of course, but also about Rome, their occupation, about Roman emperor worship. All these things were tied into this little image of this on this little coin. And it's that question that Jesus will be posed in this round of, let's try to trip Jesus up with a question. 
just kind of the game that's been played here in these next, particularly in these next few sections of chapter 12. The next few weeks we're going to be looking at a series of these questions wherein groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others are trying to trip up Jesus, who is the giver of all knowledge and wisdom, as if they could possibly do that, but yet they try nonetheless. From, from our vantage point, it might seem silly to us that anyone would ever try that, but we are the people of God. Of course it seems silly to us, but to the world, it doesn't seem silly. It seems like they're whole bent on life. So I think for us, it really helps us to understand how the world sees things. And how they see our Lord. And so as we consider the text, I want to break it down into the two big contrasting points that are found within. The things of Caesar and the things of God. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 13. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now, there's a whole lot here. I know it only seems like a handful of verses, but there's a whole lot here. And I think in order to understand what's going on here, you need to have a little bit of historical context as to what's going on. It's, I mean, that's really all of Scripture. Understanding the historical context of the Old and New Testament helps us to understand what is going on. When these people wrote these things... They were written by specific people during a specific time. Sure, they are important for all of us and all time, and they are eternal in their precepts. But for us to understand them today, we have to understand the time and the place and the people that they concern. And so in first century Judea, Rome was in power. They had taken over Judea sometime previous to this, and Rome had instituted something called a poll tax. And poll taxes are common, they're common today, which is normal, again, them for, for Rome to have done to the people that they conquered, not necessarily to Roman citizens. I spent a whole lot of time reading about Roman taxes over the week. It's fascinating to me. Uh, but I'll, and I'll, I'll save you just the, the big points because you may not be so interested in that. But this poll tax was basically a tax on not being Roman. A tax for having the protections of the Roman government. A tax of having all the privileges of everything that it meant to be in a Roman province. All of those things. In Luke chapter 2, you're all familiar with the famous text, you know, the kind of the, the Christmas passage. Verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Well, the purpose of this registration was so that Rome could enact this poll tax, which 
which happened in around 6 AD or so. And so we read about this census taking place. And so basically what they're doing is they're counting. They're counting the Jews so that they can know how much we should be collecting from them. And then they hired people that they called publicans or essentially what was a tax farmer. And they gathered taxes from the locals. And we see this all throughout the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, as Jesus deals with tax collectors quite a bit. And even some of his disciples fit that description. So as you can imagine, these taxes, as any tax ever, was not popular. And they led to lots of uprisings amongst the people. There was even a whole party of group, this whole group of people known as the Zealots. That would rise up out of this. They regularly protested these taxes in violent ways. There are a few famous protests even. The first one was right after the tax was instituted by a man by the name of Judas Judas the Galilean. who was said to have started the Zealot Party himself. And then the last big revolt about taxes happened around 66 AD. And Rome said, you know what, we've had enough. And then at that point they laid siege to Jerusalem And Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. So understand what's going on here. Israel was a proud, old nation. And this tax represented not only someone taking your possessions, which is what all taxes are, right? Here's some of my money so that you're giving me something in return, I guess. But this was a matter of national pride for Israel, This country has come in and they've taken us over just like all these other countries did. And now they want our money and they haven't even done anything to earn it other than just be here. It's hard for them. And now Jesus, who claims to be a Messiah, and remember what the Messiah is. This is the one who's going to usher in these times of peace that is going to lead the people of God and to claim the world as their own, to claim the world in his name. This should have made people happy. But of course, the Roman government's going to be what? They're going to be suspicious of this. And then the religious rulers are going to be jealous. And so all of this is coming to the table when we see these Pharisees and these Herodians come and ask Jesus this question. I think it's very important, again, for us to understand the kind of tensions that were going on in that society and even in our own when we have these same kinds of things. And so that brings us to the first point, the things of Caesar. Look with me at verses 13 and 14 again. And they sent to some of him, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And they asked him this question. That's how they kind of buttered him up at first. Asking this question, is it lawful to pay the taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Very plain question only demands one or two answers, right? Yes or no. And I love how this passage begins, and they sent him, setting up some mystery group that's pulling the strings from above, right? Who is they? Well, they is probably the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling body. Basically, think of a court system for the Jewish people. And in Jerusalem would have been the great Sanhedrin council, which would have met together and dealt with crimes concerning Jewish law. They made judgments. They made judgments even concerning death. And as you read through the Mosaic law and you see all those laws, the Sanhedrin would have been the one that would have been over those. And so they had some obvious interest in Jesus. He was coming to make trouble. Was he coming to make trouble? 
with Rome? Was he coming to make trouble with the law of Moses? Surely they had heard about him. I'm sure they had by this point. He'd been doing ministry for several years now. They wanted to test who is this Jesus and what is he all about. And so they sent some folks to catch him in a trap that would be able to answer. Who is he for? Who is he indeed? They questioned him on this tax. Is he for Rome? Or is he for the Jews? Which is essentially what this question is asking, right? They have Jesus in kind of a catch-22. If you think about it, were he to say, Jesus, were he to say simply, pay your taxes, then who is he saying he's for? Well, he's siding with Rome. This is going to upset his Jewish following. This is going to give the Sanhedrin some power over him. Yet, were he to say, don't pay your taxes, he's going to anger Rome. If you just read a little bit about history, you don't anger Rome. All right, they only did one thing with rebels. They squashed them. The older adults who were there, actually, when Jesus was talking, they would have remembered Judas, the Galilean. They would have remembered seeing the streets lined with crucified people after that rebellion. They knew what Rome did to rebels. Rome played nice as long as they weren't pestered. But when they were pestered, everything died. That's how they dealt with things. And so here's Jesus being in this trap. But trying to trap Jesus is impossible because he knows the hearts of man. He knows their thoughts. He knows their motives. Think about it. Think about times when you felt trapped in a conversation. You, we've all felt this, this pressure before. What is the pressure that we feel? It's a, it's a social pressure, right? We don't want to make someone feel a certain way by saying a certain thing. We're concerned what they might think about us after we say it. Well, if I answer it this way, they're going to think this. It's all about motives. It's all about guesses. It's all things that we can't know. We can only kind of guess at. Jesus doesn't have to guess at anything. He's never guessed anything once. He knows everything. So he knows the hearts. He knows how they feel. He knows their motives. And right, he doesn't care. He does what he wants to do. He only stands for truth because he's the son of God. That's who he is. They even said this to him, right? We know that you are true. We know that you don't care about anyone's opinion. We know that you're not swayed by appearances. And in saying this, they're actually trying to trap him even more. They want him to tell the truth because they know the truth could condemn him. So, Jesus, being who he is, rather than teach them with words first, he chooses an object lesson. So just imagine, Jesus has asked this question, should we pay our taxes or not. Now he knows their hypocrisy. That's what we're told in verse 15. And he says, bring me a denarius. So he has someone get a coin. This would be like someone saying, bring me a penny or bring me a quarter. It's kind of this thing that everyone knows about, right? Coin would have been very familiar to them. A denarius was kind of like basically a day's wages. It would have had a picture of Caesar on it. The Caesar at the time was Tiberius Caesar. And his dad before him, Caesar Augustus, who we read about in there in Luke chapter 2, there was something these two guys had in common. They thought they were God, and so did all their people. And people worshipped them. There were temples set up to Tiberius Caesar and Augustus Caesar all over the place. And people worshipped them as gods. And so when you look on this coin, you're seeing a picture of Tiberius, but you're seeing a picture of the very image of God, or what the Roman people thought anyway. They must have thought they really had Jesus now. What was he going to do? This man claims to be God. So does Caesar. What makes him different? It's all this stuff 
coming together, understand. So Jesus asked them, tell me, who is it on the coin? And they tell him, well, it's Caesar. And then he, he blows their mind with the answer. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And what does it say right after that? And they marveled at him. Their arguments were completely destroyed. He did something that most people don't do today in particular, especially on TV. He dealt directly with a question. He did deal directly with the question. He answered their question, yet he remained untrapped and walked away. It's pretty incredible. In one sentence, he explained to them that it was okay to pay to Caesar the things that are his, but that you should be giving to God the things that are his also. And so what was he saying concerning the tax? Well, it's okay to pay Caesar his tax. It was Caesar's land, was it not? He took it over. The Jews were his subjects, whether they wanted to be or not. They owed him a tax, and it wasn't wrong for them to pay that tax. In fact, his image was on the coin. Whose coin was that? It was the coin of Tiberius Caesar's. It was his coin. Pay him, then, his coin. It makes sense. Well, this passage has been used to teach just about anything and everything to do with money, as it were. And maybe there is a lot here, and maybe we could teach a whole lot of different applications for this particular passage. And I, that's fine if we need to ask those or answer those questions and ask them, that's good. But at the end of the day, there's only one idea that's being taught here. There are things that belong to the world, and there are things that belong to God. And when it comes to the things that belong to this world, what should we leave them with? Themselves. While Caesar fancied himself as a god, he wasn't. Yet, he was the head of the most powerful empire of his time, and with that carried some authority. And that authority didn't derive from Caesar. It's not as if Caesar said, you know what, I'm going to be powerful today, and went and did that. No, that authority derived from a creator, derived from the creator of Caesar. Caesar's dead. He's been dead a whole long time. There was a time before Caesar. There's been a long time after Caesar. He's not the creator. He's not God. He was created. So from his creator, he got this authority. And his God-given authority should be respected by the people. Absolutely. So Jesus said to them, pay your taxes. What did he do single-handedly here? He shut down these people called the zealots. He shut down the Jewish nationalists. Because Jesus knew there were greater things to concern oneself with than these things that are passing away. Now consider this in our current context. In a world where who's in charge and who's getting your money are the thoughts that everyone are thinking about. Who's in charge, who's getting their money, everyone is bothered by those things. People get really upset. Nearly every protest that we've seen, every aggression that we've seen in the news today is about those two things. Who's in charge, who's getting the money. Everybody, everything. It's largely because when the world looks at that coin... They see a God. They can't make a separation between the things that are Caesar's and the things that are God's because in those, in their minds, those two things coexist as one. The Pharisees did it as well. 
But in their mind, whose picture should be on the coin? Not Tiberius. Their own. Right? The Jewish nation should be its own nation. And there should be a Jew on their coin. And they should be God. Either way, who's in charge? Who's getting the money? This is the most important thing. Why do you think Jesus talked about money so much? Why do you think he told them? In another book, another book the Bible, why do you think he told them? You can't serve God and money. Because they're opposite things. One is the things of Caesar. One is the things of God. Because he knew the hearts of men. He knew that if you served money, you already had your God. You can't serve the one true God. So when it comes to the things of this world, yes, even big things like who's in charge, who's getting our money, these are the things of Caesar. They're of this world. How do you know they're of this world? They're going away. For the Christian who's, who stores their treasures in heaven and who has who is commanded to seek the things above because we have been raised with Christ who is above. The things of Caesar are a passing thing. They're gone. They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. The world is passing away. And one day who's in charge and who's getting the money won't matter anymore. But there will be things that still matter. And that brings me to the second point. The things of God. So Jesus says that we should render to God the things that are God's. So consider real quick the context. He's holding this coin while he says this. He's saying this and he's holding this coin with Tiberius on there with the likeness of a man on it. So when it comes to the likeness of man, well, which of those are God's? Think about the likeness of God. Where have we heard this before? Well, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. I think this is really important, particularly as you pair this with the psalm that we read from this morning in Psalm 8. This is a passage you've all heard before, but I want you to think about it in the context of what we just heard in Mark chapter 12, with this likeness of this man who thinks he's God. Genesis 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea or the birds of the heavens over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. Understand what's going on here. He's, he's given his image to this man and he's given man dominion over all the other things that he has made. To every beast of the earth, every bird of the heavens, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given this plant for food. And so it was. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. He created man in his image. So when 
When God said, let us make man, he said, we're going to create him in our image. And here is Jesus. Fast forward to Mark chapter 12. Jesus was there on that day when it was said, let us make man. He was part of the us that was in agreement here. When God created man in his image, he didn't just create him and leave him be. He gave him instructions, and we saw those there we just read. What did he say to man when he made him in his own image? He didn't say this to the bears and the hippos and the plants and all this other stuff. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it and its creatures. And without going into the whole of redemptive history, what do we know about man shortly thereafter? He failed. He tried and he failed. We couldn't even get past the first two people before we failed. The image bearer failed their creator. And that's hard to imagine of an image, right? I mean, think of the coin. Think of that coin that has Tiberius on it. Even for those pictures that I saw on the graves as a kid. They only really told part of the story of what was going on, right? The whole story of that person, you, you, you couldn't tell it by just looking at the picture. It was, it would be hard for that image to fail in any way because there's not a whole lot that it's doing. It's only projecting a certain thing, not the thing itself. But for man, it was different. We were created in the image of God to have fellowship with the Creator. The one who gave His image wanted fellowship with those image bearers. Not only that, but he had expectations of them. That we would be in, sub, in sub, subjection to him. That we would see him as our authority. That we would worship him. And yet very quickly, just fast forward just a couple of chapters there, we went into business for ourselves. We sought to dethrone the Creator. Imagine the image on that coin looking at Tiberius and saying, this is my kingdom now. Imagine the picture on that gravestone saying, this is how I want to live my life. It's silly. So how should the Creator react? When Jesus says, give unto God the things that are God's, while holding an image of a person who thought himself to be God, Understand what's going on there. Don't miss that. When Jesus says, give to thing, give to God the things that are God, he says to the image that he created, that he told to have dominion over all things. What is he saying to that image? He's saying that there isn't anything that we should not be giving to God. All things are mine. All things belong to him. All things are under him. All things were his in the beginning. All things are going to be his in the end. Yet we, as man, we won't have that. And so what did Jesus do? Why was he even in Jerusalem anyway? Well, he came to die for that reason. Because man, the very image of God, rebelled against his creator, wanted his throne for his own. And Jesus, who had every right, think about it, what would Rome have done? Well, what did they do to, G to Jerusalem for refusing to pay taxes? They went in and said, no more Jerusalem. 
So what could Jesus have done to the rebels who said, I'm going to live life my own way? Well, he had every right to do what Rome did to Israel. He had every right to wipe them off the face of the earth. He could have just said, I'm finished. And punished every person who ever worshipped another image or made the things that are Caesar to be the things that are God. And if he did that, well, that would have taken care of all of us. Instead, what did he do? Understand that. He went to the cross and said, it is finished. And he accomplished the work of redemption. The work of redemption for him was to put himself in the seat of those who profaned his name. We just read from the Ten Commandments this morning. What he tells not to do? Don't profane my name. What do we do every single time that we sin? We profane his name. He went and he hung on the cross for those who worshiped the created thing rather than the creator. The thing that was supposed to be subject to us, we decided to start worshiping. When Jesus went to the cross, he became like us. He became sin. He became like those who would usurp the throne of his father, who would profane the image of God so that they the corrupt image bearers like ourselves, the rebels, the idol worshipers, might become the very righteousness of God. And so for those of us in Christ, every time that we read these words of Jesus, give to God the things that are God, every time that we don't do that, well, those sins that we commit every time that we don't do that, those sins have been atoned for by God himself because he became man and he died in our place. So now that we're in Christ, now that we are in Christ, brothers and sisters, why is it then that we still want to give to Caesar the things that are God's? Why do we want to make Caesar a God? Jesus said, it's totally fine for us to give to to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's totally fine. But we must also give to God the things that are his. And the things that are God's matter most. Things of Caesar are passing away. So what about for the unbeliever? Well, if you're an unbeliever here today, you're a worshiper of Caesar in one form or another. Probably not Tiberius Caesar, but somebody, something, probably yourself. And without Christ, you will stand before God as an idol worshiper and you will deserve death. Yet Christ came that you might have life. He said that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. Call out to him today and be saved. Give to God the things that are God's. So in conclusion, I recognize this is a hard passage. And there are lots and lots of specific applications that we can go through. So, And I saw I stayed pretty general. If you have questions, again, we can deal with them in Sunday school like we often do. But Christians, understand this. Give to things, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, absolutely. But don't forget ultimately all things, including ourselves, the very image of God. These are the things of God, and let us give to God the things that are his. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us with this because, I mean, this is the very essence of sin, that we know the things that are yours, but yet we choose not to give them to you anyway. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Give us wisdom. Most of all, give us your mercy. We need it. 
We are people who see our own way and see that it is best. Help us to see your way as best. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.